So for Lent, we have been going through this series called Curator, Repairing the Damaged Frames. And what we've been doing is using a painting and describing how in an art exhibit, many times artists will display their art in such a way that when people come into the museum, they look upon it, they begin to interpret it as they make observations about it. And many times as they walk away, they might have a different conclusion than what the artist intended. Uh, And yet at the same time, what we find is that an artist will go out of his way or her way to try to get us to think deeper about a particular topic than what we often think about it. And that's the case for today. So in this series, we have looked at the temptation of Jesus. Then we looked at the transfiguration of Jesus major events in the life of Christ. Then we began to look at the warnings of Jesus, how he was describing what was yet to await this generation as they resisted against the Roman Empire. And then last week we talked a little bit about the parables of Jesus. Now today what we want to talk about is the death of Jesus. So this is a most familiar image to us. We see a crucified Christ in churches all the time. You'll see people wear uh, cross necklaces or other pieces of jewelry. And many times what we begin to do is formulate what this means by what we have already been told a lot of times. Now what I want us to do is to kind of rethink this morning, what does the death of Christ upon the cross mean? So to do that, what I want us to do is to take a look at a picture. And this picture, I want you to observe it for a couple of moments, and then I'm going to ask you a question, okay? So here's the picture, okay? Take a a look at it. Okay, so as you observe this picture, how many of you think this woman is twirling clockwise, okay? How many of you think that woman is twirling counterclockwise? Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at that picture. I want you to blink or look away and look back at it real quick. Did it change rotation on you? Did it? Try it again, okay? Now, your mind is driving you to look at this picture in a particular way. But if you focus on it long enough, or if you kind of blink or look away and look back at it, you'll notice it has changed direction. Now the question is, which is the right way to look at this picture? They both are okay, all right? Because you are looking at the picture in a particular way does not mean that the other perspective is necessarily wrong. Now, how many of you are getting dizzy looking at this? (laughs) Okay, so what I wanna do today is I want us to think a little bit about the different theories that have been used as to ascertaining what is the meaning of the death of Christ. I'm gonna leave that spin up there just for a couple more seconds because I wanna introduce what I'm gonna do. So when you go into a church, many times the average congregant does not know the intensity of the debate among biblical scholars as to this question, 
Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? And so most people kind of settle into a particular look at this question and have a particular answer because they have been conditioned to look at this question only in one way. But if you will stop long enough and consider that there is multiple ways to answer this question, you might see this is a much deeper and bigger topic than maybe what you have ever thought about. Now, most of you have been given usually one perspective. We who live in the United States as part of the Western culture, churches have basically told you that Jesus had to die on the cross to forgive you for your sins. How many of you have been told that? The majority of you, okay. So if Jesus did not die upon the cross, then you can't be forgiven for your sins, and therefore you cannot go into eternity, uh, uh, and that type of thing has been told to you over and over and over and over again, and you've been conditioned to think that's the only way to look at this topic. Well, the key question that follows that is, well, how does that actually work? if Jesus needs to die upon the cross in order for the forgiveness of sins, how does that actually work? And why would God demand that? So hold that for a moment, and let's make a statement and see if I can back it up. We cannot reduce the meaning of the death of Christ to one particular perspective, because when you actually look in the Scriptures, there's a variety of ways to look at this particular topic. So there are some theories that have been given over the years, or we might call them windows to look through to answer this question. And I think what you're going to see is this makes this topic much more relevant. It makes it much bigger maybe than what you have been told all of your life. So here are some theories that have been used. The first one, and each theory, we're going to look at six of them real quick. I could actually spend the next two hours talking about this because it's a very deep topic, okay? But we're just going to give you an overview. And in each theory, I want to talk about the idea, the scripture behind it, and the effect that it has. So the first one is what is called the moral influence theory. And that is when Jesus died upon the cross, he was bringing about a positive change to humanity by the example of his teaching, by the example of his miracles, and by the example of his death. So when we look at the whole of the life of Christ, it has a moral influence upon those who consider it and contemplate it and think about what they are observing. Now, this view is probably one of the oldest views that goes all the way back almost to the first century, really. So what you're going to find in each theory, it seems as though there's a period of time where people concentrate on that particular view. This one goes back thousands of years ago. And what we find is we are called to a better life individually and collectively because as we observe Jesus, we too conclude what the soldier 
concluded as he was standing by the cross. So in Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, there's a Roman centurion who's standing guard at the cross. And as he's looking at Jesus upon the cross, he's seeing the way that he dies. He sees what Jesus says from the cross. And as he says these things, as Jesus is drawing his last breath, this Roman centurion soldier looks at Jesus on the cross and he says, surely this man is the Son of God. Just observing this moral example of one who never ever uh, committed sin, never ever betrayed anyone else, always gave forgiveness, gave a, uh, his very best to cure and heal as many people as possible. Um, here is a Roman centurion committed to the Roman Empire, but he sees that there's a better way to live than the Pax Romana and the empire way of living. So he makes this conclusion. And since Jesus is being crucified alongside two terrorists, that could be a very risky thing to say when you think about the Roman centurion, that this man is the son of God. Could he lose his position or could he lose his life because he's siding with someone that is a possible betrayer of the Roman power, okay? So here's the effect. Certainly when we learn about Jesus, when we listen to his teaching, it should have a positive effect upon us. Now it has also been said that Christianity helped produce a lot of things to benefit society, education, hospitals, a lot of things you'll notice that are named after St. Luke Hospital. Are you following what I'm saying? Different names because of the influence that has been positive upon civilization. Now, I might say this particular viewpoint is not as popular among Protestant churches as it is Orthodox churches or other churches, but that's the first theory that goes way back. Secondly, this is called the ransom theory. Now, the ransom theory is a little bit more complex, and what I mean by that is when Jesus died upon the cross, his death becomes a ransom payment. The key question, though, becomes who is the payment made to? Is it made to God or is it made to Satan? So when the story that is found in Genesis of the, the, earliest, uh, uh, the earliest inhabitants of this earth uh, began to move away from the one true God as told in the book of Genesis, it's, uh, the scriptures talk about Adam and Eve bargaining away the freedom of the human race. And Satan, this this personification of the blasphemer or the accuser is trying to keep us indebted to this shame and this guilt that we carry because none of us are perfect. And so what we find is that Jesus gives himself to free humanity from this enslavement to this power that forces us to do the wrong things in the eyes of God. In other words, we have all been kind of kidnapped by evil 
and we need somebody to pay a ransom to set us free. Now, this is a very, very old viewpoint as well. And it comes from the words of Jesus himself in uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. These are the words of Jesus. I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So you know the idea of a ransom. Somebody's kidnapped, you pay the ransom. So there's this great exchange that takes place. Money is paid, and then the one that has been kidnapped has been set free. God double-crosses Satan through the resurrection. So the idea behind this is Satan thought he could win the battle by Jesus' death upon the cross, but his resurrection sets us free. And once his resurrection occurs, um, we have been freed from the grip of this original sin that has been part of the human race from one generation to the next. Thirdly, this is called the Christus Victor victory. So this viewpoint is the idea that Jesus dies to defeat, number one, the powers of evil, and number two, the fear of death. So when you think about the miracles of Jesus, you'll notice in the gospel accounts, many times Jesus is setting people free from demons. Now, we who live in the 21st century know that they did not have the working medical knowledge that we do today to understand that's epilepsy or that's this or that's that. But they attribute it to supernatural influences like demons. So what the Christus victory uh, says is uh, Jesus sets us free from that power that holds us captive. So it's in similarity to the ransom theory, but here's the twist on it. We constantly live in the fear of death. And when Jesus died upon the cross, he did so to defeat death through his death and then through his resurrection. And you'll notice the scripture. The book of Hebrews writes in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, So children have flesh and blood. He too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Fear is this overwhelming sense in the back of our mind that we don't know what happens after we draw our last breath. And I think people that are near the end of their life naturally have a fear within them unless they know that Jesus has already accomplished the victory through his resurrection and that we do not need to fear death anymore. God himself fully entered into the bondage of death, turned it inside out by making it a moment of victory and thereby liberating humanity to live lives free from fear. That's a wonderful thing to know. I don't need to fear whether I live a long life or whether my life is cut short, I'm in the hands of a loving God. Now, here's the one that you have been told for many, many years in church. It's called the penal substitution theory. Now, here's how it goes. Jesus' death is to satisfy the wrath of God and to accomplish the justice of God. Therefore, if you do not accept Jesus' death upon the cross, you cannot be forgiven. Okay? 
There's a fear element in that as well. Now, this particular viewpoint, while it has been most popular in the United States from the time of Jonathan Edwards when he wrote the book, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, this viewpoint did not come into existence until the days of the Reformation, the 1600s, which is fascinating. When you put theology in the hand of lawyers, they tend to make everything legal. So John Calvin, great theologian, he was a lawyer. So he looked at everything through the lens of legal viewpoint. Does that make sense to you? And so that naturally was the tendency that he had, a legal emphasis. And so the problem here is the theory behind it. And that is God is so wrathful that somehow he needs to be given a sacrifice to appease his wrath so that he won't take his anger out on you. The shortcoming of this viewpoint is this. When you get mad at someone and you need to forgive someone, you do not say, hold on a second, I'm going to go beat my kid up so I can forgive you. It seems illogical, doesn't it? But that's the way this viewpoint goes. God takes out all of his wrath on Jesus, therefore he can forgive you. Well, that's not the way you forgive. That's not the way I forgive. In other words, you do not need some sort of retaliation in order to forgive. You need to find it within you to be able to forgive. Now, here's the positive of this particular viewpoint. It completes the idea that mankind has had since the beginning of civilization. And that is, when you have a God of wrath, you need to appease his anger in some way. So within pagan religions, a lot of times that means sacrificing a child or something like that. Within Judaism, child sacrifice was replaced with animal sacrifices. Does that make sense? So in the book of Leviticus, you have the sacrifice of bulls and goats and those type of things. That was part of the culture of that civilization at the time. Now, Brian Zond, that we began the service with, makes a keen observation. And that is, the sacrifices that are found in the Bible is not so much for God's sake, but for yours. In other words, like the Jews observes the Day of Atonement, there's actually something there that you can hang on to to be assured that your sins have been forgiven. So when Jewish people offered sacrifices, it was a physical way of reinforcing that God would forgive them. In other words, did God need that sacrifice to be able to forgive? Well, here's where later in the Old Testament, the prophets tell us that when there's a lack of justice that was going on, God says, it, I do not look for sacrifice, I look for mercy. Now that's a fascinating twist, okay? So even within the Bible itself, you see a change of perspective from the time of Leviticus to the time of the prophets. 
And yet you have scriptures that kind of reinforce that sacrificial uh, type of culture. So this is a popular one, Romans 3, 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, by the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. So what is taking place in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is the last sacrifice that ever is, uh, needs to occur for mankind to be assured that they do not need to be afraid uh, that God has chosen to forgive our sins. So here's the danger of this uh, particular viewpoint. If it's the only lens that we're looking through, how is the God of love presented in the Bible any different than the pagan gods? Something for you to think about. If this is a part of a cultural thing that comes to a fulfillment in the person of Jesus, as the book of Hebrews tells us, Jesus is better. Jesus is a better priest. He's a better prophet. He's a better sacrifice. In other words, you don't need that whole system anymore. So when you look at it strictly through the lens of a lawyer, you can come up with kind of this economic model. But what if God is saying, look, I'd love to forgive you, but you first have to pay off your justice first. Well, you can't do it, therefore, I'm going to bring all my punishment upon Jesus. There's an element of that in part of the Bible, but when you take it to the nth degree, it, it is something that I think has been exaggerated some. So that brings us to the last two. <clears throat> so there's this idea that comes along a little bit later, and that has been popularized by a theologian by the name of René Girard, he's a French theologian, that said, listen, since the beginning of the human race, we've always looked for a scapegoat, someone that we can blame for all the problems that we're in, okay? So you'll notice in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, there was also this um, ritual of the scapegoat, where the confession of sins was placed upon a head of a goat, and that goat became the scapegoat, and that it was taken out into the wilderness and released so that it would not come back into the camp. So you see, a lot of this is ritualism, but it plays out in human experience in this way. As human societies grew, obviously rivals occur between different people groups, even subsets of people groups within the same country. As you know, we are an open and affirming congregation here of the LGBTQ community. And as you know, the LGBTQ community has been the scapegoats of evangelical Christianity for dozens and dozens and dozens of years. So what has happened is this idea of a scapegoat is trying to put blame on something or someone so that I can feel better about myself. Now, is that found in the Bible? Well, the whole imagery of the lamb that Jesus takes upon himself lends itself to him being a scapegoat. In other words, all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our blame is placed upon him on the cross. And you remember John the Baptist 
when Jesus was coming to be baptized, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In other words, Jesus is the last scapegoat. There's no other scapegoats that are needed. And so what we find here is that Jesus dismantles at the cross this tendency that we have to blame other people for all the problems in the world and then kills them sometimes in order to avoid the shame that we don't want to live with. Which brings me to this last one. The revelation of God. The death of Christ upon the cross reveals the glory of God. Let's come back to this passage of Scripture that I read just a moment ago. In John chapter 12, verses 20 and following, how did Jesus view his own upcoming death? He viewed it as a seed. Interesting. A seed. He says, as a seed is planted in the ground, then it gives birth, just as many of you will plant seeds for flowers or tomato plants or whatever here in a few weeks. It then develops and grows into something else. He also uses the image of an hour. My hour has come. In other words, this is why I came into this world, that I might go to the cross, that I might plant a seed, and from that seed will grow what? In this passage, several times, the word glory comes. He says in verse 27, Father, should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, for this very reason I came to this hour. I came to this moment. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven. Remember this is the third time we've heard from God. Jesus' baptism, transfiguration, and now in this occasion, I have glorified it, I will glorify it again. Jesus came to reveal to us this God of love and glory that mankind tends not to understand. The death of Christ upon the cross substantiates that God loves us so much that he would rather die than kill. Amen? This is a God of love that loved us so much that he was willing to take all of the violence upon himself so that he could show to us, as Jesus hung upon the cross, he looks down upon those that are gathered around the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They are ignorant. They're stupid. They don't get it. I'm revealing the love of God. I'm revealing the glory of God. This is the seed that will change the world. This is the seed that allows us to see the lengths to which God will go to forgive us our sins. All we have to do is look upon this one and say, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for revealing that you are a God of love. You see, at Golgotha, where we see the crimes of humanity, pride and rivalry and blame and violence and war and empire all coming together to put Jesus on the cross, it's brought into the light for what it is. That's another thing that's in this passage here. When Jesus said, you're only going to have this light for a little while longer, 
while you have the light, walk in it before darkness overtakes you. In other words, live within the light, live within the revelation of what God is like, and begin to really believe to the depths of your being that God is a God of love. God will always love you. There never was a time when God did not love you. You see, here's the point. The point that is being made in many ways here is God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There never was a time when God was not like Jesus. We not have, have not always known that, but now we do. Isn't that cool? And this brings great joy to our hearts to know that we actually can see a change of, of our own lives and the world around us if we live within the love of God. It is through the visibility of God's agony on the cross that we see the pain of forgiving, the pain of absorbing the betrayal and foregoing any revenge or taking the risk to retaliate. It is simply by faith taking it into our hearts as the seed that continues to grow within us. Jesus says this will have three effects and then I'm done. He says here, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Judgment on what? The system, the way we live our life, the way we mistreat other people. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. So you have judgment that comes upon the way the world is currently organized. Secondly, judgment comes upon the prince of demons that empowers this way we live. And then, finally, he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. When we look upon the cross and see the love of God and the forgiveness that God offers to us, we are drawn to it. So here's the deal. There are all these different ways of looking at why did Jesus die? Which one's right? See, that's what we naturally go to, right? Which one's right and which are the ones that are wrong? So, I want to show you this. This is just one club in a golf bag. So you're going to go out to play golf. I am tomorrow night. So our, our league starts tomorrow night. What if I only used one club? I use this club to drive with, to chip with, and to putt with. Well, I don't think I'd do very good. I don't do very well anyways. I mean, after all, Kevin Costner and Tin Cup could use a shovel and a rake. And <laughs> but here's the point. Which club in the bag is the right one? Depends on the situation. If you're on the green, this is the one that you want to use, right? If you're on the tee, you want to use a driver, not a putter. If you're in the fairway, you want to use an iron. These views all give to us a more well-rounded understanding because you can go to different passages of Scripture to see it teased out in different ways because this has been something that has been talked about forever. But here's the point. Sometimes we recite the Apostles' Creed here, right? There's no theory of the atonement in the Apostles' Creed. Isn't that fascinating? 
There's no ecumenical church council that was ever convened to say which is the right atonement theory. Now, atonement is a big word that means how do we become at one-ment with God? How, do, how, do, how are we reconciled to God? How do we reestablish a relationship? No ecumenical council, not in any of the creeds. Maybe those that are smarter than we understand that this is such a beautiful kaleidoscope of looking upon the cross that when we see Jesus on the cross, we see a variety of things. And depending upon the era that people are struggling with this question, they pulled out a particular club and they used it primarily because of the need of the moment. Does that make sense to to people? Okay, so here's what I want us to do. We're going to take communion together, and as we do so, we'll close our service. Um, I'd like for you to, if you'd like to partake in communion, to go ahead and come on up here uh, to my left, and then you can kind of come across and go back here. It's a little bit awkward when we have all this equipment up here that we never used to have, but um, if you'd like to take communion, here's what I want you to remember. On the night that Jesus was betrayed. He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled for you. So if you'd like to take communion, you can come on up and take a cup and take a piece of bread here. And uh, as you do so, hold it until you get back in your seat and then we will partake together as a community. Okay? You're invited. So Jesus, on the night that he died, had a meal with his disciples. It was a Passover meal, and he took the bread and he took the wine and he infused it with new meaning. And the meaning that he infused it with was taking the bread and he said, this is my body given for you. This is my life, my teaching, my miracles, my death, and ultimately my resurrection given for you. So we take a piece of bread and we are reminded that God loves us. He proves it in the person of Christ. And we look upon his cross and his death. And we say thank you for your love and thank you for your forgiveness. Let's eat together. Jesus had several cups of wine that's a part of a Passover Seder. The third one he picked up And he made this statement, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new agreement between God and man. Not the one that's built on the law and the prophets from the Old Testament, but one that is built upon my life, my death, my miracles, my teaching, that type of thing. So we take a cup, we fill it with juice, and we are reminded that he loved us to the point of of absorbing our violence and hate and he gives back to us his love. Let's drink in remembrance of him. So I'd like you to stand as I close our service. I told you at the beginning I want to begin and end with a quote from Brian Zahn. Now this particular quote comes out of his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. It's a play on that old sermon from Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this is one of the things that he said in his book. 
The cross is the ever-unfolding revelation of who God is, and it cannot be summed up in a simple formula. This is the bane of tidy atonement theories that seek to reduce the cross to a single meaning. The cross is many things. It is the pinnacle of God's self-disclosure. It's divine solidarity with all human suffering. It's the shaming of the principalities and powers. It is the point from which the Satan is driven out of the world. It's the death by which Christ conquers death. It's the abolition of war and violence. It's the supreme demonstration of the love of God. It's the refounding of the world around an axis of love. It's the enduring model of co-suffering love we are to follow. It's the eternal moment in which the sin of the world is forgiven. So as you go today, can I give you the encouragement Jesus gave to those that were wanting to question him? He said to them, put your trust in the light while you still have it. Amen. Have a great day, everyone. And I hope you have a great week.